Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Ola's research focuses on adolescent mental health with a particular focus on risk and resilience processes, the mechanisms underlying risk and inequality in mental health symptoms, as well as the factors and processes that may mitigate such vulnerabilities. She's interested in gendered mental health patterns and experiences and how these fit into broader societal contexts and expectations. She has led and contributed research projects funded by organisations like the National Lottery Community Fund, NIHCE and the Education Endowment Foundation. She's based at the Manchester Institute of Education since 2016. She's an honorary research fellow at the Evidence-Based Practice Unit and also teaches predominantly on the master's course in psychology of education and the BSc in educational psychology. Welcome Dr. Ola Demkovic. How are you? I'm fine Kathy. How are you? I'm delighted to be speaking to you. I've followed your work very much on Twitter and we're very excited to have you on our podcast this morning. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. And we're excited because we're going to feature one of your most recent publications as our Research of the Month feature on the Tooled Up Education website. And I'm just going to read out the title of that piece of work. It was called Cumulative Risk Exposure and Emotional Symptoms Among Early Adolescent Girls. And uh, you published it in 2021. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that's right. So that paper focused on risk factors for the development of emotional symptoms in young adolescent girls. But before we talk about the findings of the paper, give us a little bit of background on the current picture regarding mental health for girls in the UK and perhaps more widely. Yeah, so the context for this piece of work is really, we've known for quite a long time now that girls and women tend to be at greater risk of, I'm calling them emotional symptoms here, but I know that's quite a clinical term, essentially low mood and anxiety. And and also when you're thinking about the kind of more extreme end of that, of kind of depression and anxiety disorders, perhaps. We know that women in general are at greater risk of that. We know that we tend to see about twice as many women reporting those kinds of difficulties as we do men. And we know that that tends to, the kind of gender difference that we see there does sort of kick in seemingly from early adolescence. We start to see that widening of a a difference there. And by the age of 15 is when research has tended to show that that kind of double the risk seems to be happening. So that's a longstanding issue that has been known for quite some time. More recently, though, there's been a lot of concern because several studies have looked at kind of what we call, you know, a time trend analysis, have looked at a cohort from a few years ago and then a more recent cohort. Several papers that have done that have found that actually we're not seeing, you know, the kind of more widely the mental health crisis that's often kind of feared. We don't tend to see lots and lots of differences between cohorts in terms of mental health. What we are seeing quite consistently, though, is greater reporting of low mood and anxiety among particularly adolescent girls. And that increase tends to not be there for adolescent boys in those cohorts. So there's a bit of a worrying trend that's been kind of happening for sort of 10 to 15 years that people have been reporting, you know, in fact, almost 20 years now, you know, there seems to be something happening there. We don't really know what that is. We don't know if it's something about, you know, it could be that we're normalizing talking about those feelings more. And maybe it's just that girls are more are kind of reporting that a little bit differently. It could just be that it's about that kind of language that we're using. Or it could be that there's a genuine increase. We don't really know, though why that might be the case. There's lots of suggestions that have been put forward. So some of those include 
increased sexualization of adolescent girls and that the kind of globalized way that we are at the moment means they're very exposed to that also. You know, things like social media have been suggested, things like that actually in schools, a low mood and anxiety, the things being picked up on early, probably not, probably more disruptive behavior kinds of things. So there's lots of ideas. We don't know a, a ton about what that is though. And we don't know lots about what young women themselves think, which is some research we're doing at the moment to try and understand their perspectives on that issue. So there's a bit of a worrying picture at the moment, I suppose, not to panic any listeners, but yeah, there does seem to be kind of a general trend of just something ticking upwards a little bit. So in reference to that term mental health crisis, yes, as you've mentioned, just to be clear, pre-pandemic, these were rising rates anyway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they were. But We do know that the pandemic has exacerbated some particular conditions like anxiety tics or eating disorders are on the rise. So people are suddenly paying attention, I think, much more to those mental health Mm. conditions. I think people's attention has certainly been drawn to those. Yes. Yeah. And certainly there was talk pre-pandemic of a mental health crisis that there was often a lot of questioning from researchers about, you know, did we have the evidence to support that or not? It was sometimes unclear. Certainly we did already have this evidence for girls. But yeah, I think since the pandemic, there's definitely, it's a, it is a different conversation that we need to be having now in that sense that actually there has been a bit of a, you know, major cultural moment that's happened. And so talks about the kind of pre versus post and actually what we're trying to understand there, yeah, is again, a totally different thing also. So it's complex. And and also, I think that people who are listening to this might be shocked, surprised that it is these adolescent girls that the you know outcomes are poorer for. And I think, isn't it true to say girls as well suffer from lower self-esteem? They worry more. They worry about all sorts of different things. Their looks more. I think that was proven in the NHS digital survey pre-pandemic. There seems to be, as you mentioned, so much going on for children of that age. Yeah, there's definitely evidence of a kind of a general, you know, among girls as a whole, that there does tend to be, you know, slightly high rates of lower self-esteem. Certainly we know, and this, you know, these are things we do already know about why girls do have some of these difficulties, you know, it's really hard in lots of ways to be a teenage girl. There's a lot of expectations. There's a lot of pressures, as we talked about before, the kind of the sexualization that's happening. And we do know, and we're increasingly seeing, importantly, talk about quite how rife sexual harassment is in schools. And some of those issues that are really complicated, actually, as girls are going through huge physical changes in their bodies and their understanding of themselves. And all of that is quite messy, I think. And yeah, it can be quite difficult. As a researcher, do you think it's fruitful to think about the, you know, has the pandemic almost exposed vulnerability, but also exposed where young people are resilient, even to themselves? They've suddenly had to pay attention to what worked for them in terms of coping. And is there something useful in that lesson? Absolutely. I think that that's a really important point. And certainly we did some research really early on in the pandemic, the TELL study, where we spoke with young people and asked them to tell us, you know, what's going on for you at the moment? What's happening? How are you managing it? And what I've been really struck by there and also in other people's work more recently is how actively young people were taking care of themselves. A lot of the time when we talk about support that's given in schools, we talk about teaching them this skill and teaching them that skill. And actually, young people are perfectly equipped to figure out what feels good for them. And it's important to have conversations to help them explore that. And to help them identify where things might not be working and where they might need to expand on that. But actually, some of it is about allowing and working with young people to figure out, actually, 
what helps them calm down and how can they do that in a way that fits within their day? And and I was really struck by, you know, young people in COVID were saying, okay, normally the thing for me is I go to the gym. I can't go to the gym. This is all really stressful. My normal way of getting out that stress is the gym, right? What can, you know, so I'm doing this instead and it's working okay, but I'm figuring that out. And they were really actively doing that. And sometimes it was things, you know, some of them talked about binge eating and smoking, but they also knew those things weren't great coping strategies. So again, it's sometimes about kind of working with them to explore that. But yeah, I think it's really important that we recognize what young people, you know, they know themselves that, you know, some elements of that are still being figured out. But in the same way that, you know, I know what works for me when I'm having a bad day. That's not just because I'm an adult. It's because I've been able to kind of explore that. And we should be helping young people figure that out for themselves, I think is the thing. Absolutely. And one of the things that really comes through your paper is the sort of the call for action to include young people's voices much more in research, because in some ways they're, I mean, they're so innovative. They're so able to generate ideas and, you know, they're full of creativity. And I think sometimes what you've just drawn attention to is that, you know, parents, teachers, maybe we're adults in general, we sort of have an expectation that we have to solve everything when actually self-generated coping ideas are so uh, exciting and fruitful for them. Yeah, absolutely. Often when we publish kind of qualitative work where we talk about what young people have told us, often I have people say to me, oh, it's so amazing that they had all those things to say. And I'm so surprised by how insightful these are. And I'm thinking, respectfully, I'm not surprised at all. Of course, they have things to say about, you know, these things are affecting them. Of course, they have perspectives on them. Of course, they've been thinking about them. I'm always impressed by it, but I'm never surprised by it, I suppose, is the thing, because they have so much to kind of say about these things that are affecting them. We should give them space and time to to do that in all sorts of ways. Can I ask about a little conundrum that often comes up when I'm speaking to parents in this area? We talk about, you know, teenage girls being disproportionately impacted, but Mm -hmm. the suicide rates for young men are higher. How do we sort of reconcile that? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this is where with my feminist head on, it's that the issues that are affecting girls are also affecting boys just in a different, they're just, it's the same starting point that's coming into place. So for instance, we know that there is the really insightful research about the emotional language that we use with children of different genders. So, you know, with girls, we tend to use more kind of those emotional things of feeling upset, feeling sad, feeling worried. We also tend to use a wider emotional vocabulary with girls. So we help them label those feelings. We also tend to kind of label everything, you know, more of those things as that kind of, you know, those feminine emotions, as it were, that we're talking, you know, that tend to be, you know, boys act out and girls feel sad. You know, I'm not saying that's the case, but what I am saying is that tends to creep into the way we're talking about emotions with young children. There's evidence that we tend to use a narrower range of emotional words with boys. And we also tend to, you know, oh, you're feeling angry, you're feeling cross right now. And actually, so we're giving children very specific ways of expressing those feelings. So that is one of the theories as to why women are more prone to depression is not necessarily because they are more prone to depression, but because we've encouraged from a young age that emotions express in that way. So there starts to become questions about, okay, well, if we're giving girls tools to talk about feelings. And we're also encouraging them to spend a lot of time with their feelings. Whereas with boys, we're doing that a bit less. So we don't give them the space. We don't give them the the language. And so actually that becomes 
difficult in a different way. And so it's the same kind of starting point of what we think about girls and what we think about boys and that we're putting them in two different camps. And we need to be very blind and objective. And if you're a classroom teacher, think about that sort of mental state language and emotional literacy and vocabulary in a very objective way as much as possible. There is also sort of indicators, isn't there, in sort of sociological literature about impression management and masking. Mm. And, you Mm. know, I was interviewing the suicide researcher, Chris Bowden, the other day in Australia, and he was saying that in his work, in some ways, boys have not come a long way. You know, freshest research that he did, they were still masking, they were still struggling to cope with their Mm. emotions and to have that vocabulary to express themselves so it's quite interesting isn't it yeah it's, it's that discourse of you know we talk all the time about it's okay not to be okay but really what boys and men are told quite often is okay but be okay you know it, it, it's that thing of it's still minimized and they still receive in lots of subtle ways and not so subtle ways messaging that it's manly to, to suck it up and get on with it and actually that's not really the way mental health works and it's not helpful messaging and as you say it has really dire consequences for some young men. Is it also the case I'm sure you know Dr Lucy Folks's work on pathologizing the normal you know it's normal yes. to feel a bit down in the dumps when you're 15 it's normal to feel stressed out about your exams but suddenly we've all been diving in and pathologizing every conceivable emotion what would you sort of say to that I suspect you might concur yeah I mean I've had lots of Lucy and I worked together on a couple of things we've had lots of interesting conversations and I've read Lucy's very excellent book on this I do think it's a really important thing that we need to talk about. And this is often why when we talk about increased rates for girls right now, I'm very careful often to use that. There's evidence that they're reporting greater rates. We don't know that that means there are greater rates. It's very difficult to pinpoint what that is because we know there's been a huge shift in how we're talking about mental health. And in some respects, it's great to be more open. It's great to be hopefully creating a space where everybody and you know, particularly young people and children can be more vocal about their needs and to reduce that stigma. On the other hand, yeah, there's a concern that if we pathologize very normal things, that that could have all kinds of implications for people, including overloading services that are limited at the moment in a way that could mean that those with greater difficulty might have difficulty accessing that support. So it's a really complex thing of how we have that conversation and how we avoid using kind of very pathological terminology to kind of label that. I mean, so much of this is wrapped up in the quality of conversations we're having with young people. Do we dive in? Do we validate what they're saying? Do we dismiss it? Do we, you know, go too far down that road and suggest interventions when they could be, you know, self-generated coping? I mean, there's so much to that interaction between both of them. Ola, moving on specifically to your paper, uh, tell us a little bit about risk factors you identified as having a significant impact on teenagers' mental health. Yeah, so we've looked at various kind of risk factors here. The ones that we did find were associated with low mood and anxiety, which when we talk about risk factors, it is that thing of it's kind of it's a probabilistic system. So, you know, it won't necessarily mean for everybody that has that kind of risk factor that there's a difficulty for them, but certainly that we do tend to see a kind of general trend. So what we found here was that low academic attainment was a risk factor. So those those who were kind of quite low relative to their peers at school, that they were kind of at greater risk of, of having those kind of emotional symptoms. Having special educational needs also, which I think for both of those, I think it's really important to note that by no means are we suggesting that it's having low attainment or having special educational needs that in and of itself is related to those difficulties. It's that 
navigating a school system that may not always be congruent with your needs or that may create that, you know, so having special educational needs in a mainstream environment can be quite difficult sometimes because the mainstream environment is not always adapting to those needs in the way that ideally it ought to. That's not a criticism of schools. I think that's just the kind of what the state of play often is there at the moment. And similarly, having low attainment, you know, it might be about the kind of difficulties that that raises and the kind of pressures that come up there. We also found low family income to be a kind of risk factor there. There's lots of complex reasons that we think that low family income does tend to be associated with mental health inequalities for young people. Again, some of the kind of daily stresses that are sometimes experienced in the family home because of that, either because of issues financially, challenges financially that families are trying to deal with, or it can also be things like kind of neighbourhood kind of considerations there and, and kind of quite complex factors like that. We also found, and I think in the the kind of strongest one we found was having caregiving responsibilities. What we mean by that is caregiving responsibilities that would typically be performed by an adult so it's not about that loading the dishwasher is, is giving young women anxiety. It's that actually having some of those caregiving responsibilities that we might not typically expect of an adolescent girl or of an adolescent is kind of associated with some of those difficulties. So that might be caring for an adult in the family who who has some kind of illness. It might be needing to take on quite a particular role with, with caring for siblings. So some of that kind of responsibility that, that may not typically fall on a teenager. Uh, so yeah, those kind of were the key risk factors that we found there. Ola, in a circumstance like that, presumably a teenager as well might be very worried about their parents' illness. Yeah. And that's another very understandable anxiety. Yeah. And I think, again, it's it, it's really important when I'm talking about these things. It's important, I think, to be empathetic about the context that that's happening in. So, you know, it's not that we're saying, oh, young carers are purely having a terrible time or, or young people who have some level of caregiving are having a terrible time. I don't think that's always the case. And I think there's lots of research with young carers where actually they talk about how complex that experience is. And there's lots of obviously we've got that as a kind of generic category of either they do or don't consider themselves to have caregiving responsibilities. But actually the nature of that can look so different the nature of the condition or the circumstances that's necessitating that caregiving. For some young people might not be challenging at all. For some young people might be, yeah, making them really worried. They might be really worried about that parent. It might be that it, you know, it is more or less difficult for them to, you know, for some young people, they really don't feel that the actual caregiving itself is a challenge. It might, as you say, be about some of the kind of concerns that they have. So I think it's really important that we say, yeah, it's not that we think that's only a terrible experience. I don't think that's true at all. But that certainly there is something happening there in this sense that there, there might be kind of greater risk. One of the things that comes through your paper is the need, albeit you interviewed, I think, or you assessed 8,327 girls aged 11 to 12 across 100 English educational settings. Is that accurate? But you still say on a school level, we have to treat people as individuals. We have to understand their stories. We can't just generalize. But I think what this research does give schools is some indicators where vulnerabilities might lie, what to take an interest in, in children's contextual sort of factors and background. And that's really useful, I think, to provide more insight. Yeah. And I, I think it is that balancing act. It's that this kind of large scale data is helpful, as you say, in identifying things that might be worth looking at, pockets where there might be greater vulnerability. At the same time, that's not to say that young people without any of those four experiences are going to be totally fine and not have any problems. Similarly, 
there will be and are young people with these kind of risk factors, with these difficulties in their day to day lives that either aren't experiencing them as difficulties or for whom, you know, this doesn't translate into having emotional symptoms, having low mood and anxiety. So it is about kind of using that as a bit of a starting point, but there being those ongoing, you know, understanding the young people in, in that school. And understanding what the protective factors are, yes. uh, that protective assets that we know have been researched and in some ways, we just need to disseminate and share what they might be. So could you sort of talk us through some of those when it comes to teenagers in particular? In terms of thinking about protective factors? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of this is so contextual. So when we think about protective factors, you know, where risk factors are about increased vulnerability, protective factors are those resources, those experiences, those things that are in place for a young person that mean that it kind of lowers the extent to which this risk is translating into a difficulty. So it's also not to say that it gets rid of it, it cancels it out altogether, that having a special educational need, but having a good friendship, it doesn't mean it's just no longer a challenge for you. It might mean, though, that some of that is lessened, that actually, yeah, it might be that you're in a school environment where actually things might be quite overwhelming sometimes and people might not always be thinking about what your needs are in a classroom. But having a friend that you know is there and feeling cared about, that might mitigate some of it. So when we talk about protective factors, we're sort of talking about that idea of for young people who are experiencing a high level of adversity or of some of kind of a, an intense difficulty, that those factors and resources are things that can lessen how impactful that might be for them. So, you know, there's lots of them that we kind of know about, you know, relationships are a really, really important one. And I think that's where a lot of my work sits in looking at how relationships can kind of come into play there, both just in feeling cared about and having a relationship with somebody, but also in the more direct support that might be offered on the day to day basis with actually managing some of the things that might be challenges. But there are also, you know, feeling that you have things that you're good at, having that kind of high self-esteem, for instance, might be a, a useful protective factor when we're thinking about some of these difficulties. So there's all kinds of things, both within an individual, but I think more importantly for us to sometimes attend to around the individual, making sure that there are things in place in family units, in peer groups, in the school, in the community that we could think about. Actually, that's where we can be feeding in things that might be protective of our young people when they are experiencing difficulty. And there are so many things where we can all be proactive. I mean, sleep is one that you'll know affects mm. teenage mental health a lot. Yeah. Sleep deprivation or school belongingness, the extent to which they feel part of that lovely school community. And I think teachers often forget how powerful that relationship is. If a pupil gets on well with their teacher or has someone they can go to at school, it can be really, really helpful, can't it? It can, it can. I mean, there's definitely how much of a difference it makes sometimes with some of these factors is, I think, still kind of being explored. But I think definitely there are little things sometimes that we can do that actually can make quite a big difference. So, you know, like I said, it's having those relationships in place doesn't necessarily take too much resourcing. It doesn't, you know, there are those kind of little things that we can do. And actually, if we layer in ways of th that that can kind of be achieved layering those in can actually around the kind of the, the young person can actually be quite powerful sometimes do you think there's merit in drawing teenagers attention to their own protective assets helping them think about where their strengths are what they're good at who's there for them you know as a sort of an exercise within either family or school environments yeah, it's a good question. I think some of that conversation is about where they feel strong on things as well as where they would like things to shift. So I've been working for a few years now. I did my PhD with, and this data comes from a project called Head Start, 
which is a national lottery community fund program that's been happening for several years now and is still ongoing within six areas of England. And actually a really common thing that's been happening, it's, it's sort of lots of different mental health and well-being approaches are being kind of explored in, in schools and communities. And one of the things that's done in several of those areas are exactly that kind of conversation. So, you know, with young people where there might be recognition of risk or something happening, actually having a one-to-one conversation about, okay, where are you feeling almost like a traffic light system? Where are you feeling really good? You know, what about friendships with people? How's that going for you at the moment? And it might be that they identify, right, these things you're feeling really positive about, you feel like these things are really helpful. Maybe you, you want to feel that we can find you something that you feel good at, that you feel you're getting kind of achievement in. Maybe we want to think about how things are working in this area of school and actually identifying what's working really well for them and where they feel that things could be kind of strengthened for them a little bit and exploring together how that might happen. Now, everybody mentions puberty when we talk about mental health, but, you know, you look at the data, even the data that you've exposed or talked about in your in your work. And I mean, everybody's always been through puberty. But people keep saying, well, they're going through, sometimes puberty seems to be a sort of an excuse for (laughs) everything, for want of a better term. But, you know, can we talk a little bit about that and the extent to which that's true or not? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I mean, I suppose I'll caveat any answer I give here with that I'm not a biological researcher and, and my understanding of puberty and some of the specific hormonal things that are happening there is very limited compared to some colleagues. My research is very much about those kinds of more psychosocial things that are happening in day-to-day life. And I do think it's important that we that we attend to both. I think, you know, I focus on the psychosocial because I think it's really important. And I think, as you say, it's important that we don't kind of rule that out and just say this is a biological thing. Because as you say, we do all go through that. There is certainly a lot of interest in puberty and in things around hormones. Interestingly, one of the things that is often brought up around why we know that for years young women have been more vulnerable in terms of mental health. The suggestion that because that happens in early adolescence, there's been a lot of interest in the role that puberty might play in that. Specific hormones that kind of tend to come through for female bodies in puberty that do seem to be associated with greater risk. Lots of the more recent models do talk about needing to recognise those multiple sources. And, you know, there's never when we're talking about anything, but especially mental health, there's never the silver bullet of, ah, this is the problem. And I think that seems to be true around here as well, that lots of people have talked about, you know, there do seem to be some biological contributors. And for some young people, those might be more pronounced. So it might be that some people might have higher rates of some of those hormones. But equally, we can't divorce that from, we can't stop looking at those psychosocial things because we do know that there's a lot of inequality for women. We do know that, you know, when we talk about the rates for women, a lot of that is also about chronic stress is one of the things that's been talked about. Susan Nolan Hoeksema did a lot of work in this area and talking about actually there are, in women's mental health, there really isn't a silver bullet because there's so many things. And she talked about the idea that maybe it's because there's so many things that might be what the problem is here. So yes, it might be about puberty, but it might also be about the kind of the day-to-day emotional labour that women and girls are, are kind of expected to do. Things like caregiving responsibilities do seem to be higher among girls, well, are higher among girls and women. You know, it, it's that complex thing. It's it, it's how all of those things come together. So I think that's the really important thing when we're talking about biology is puberty may be involved. Again, I don't know the extent to which it, it kind of, the strength of that necessarily, but 
we can't discount it, but we also can't just totally rely on it to explain what's happening there. And of course, often at the age of 11 or 12, when they're off to secondary school, they'll get a phone. And the introduction of social media is really challenging when you're coming out of your little shell and you're trying to work out who you are and and taking an interest in how others respond to you. It's very, very complicated at that point, isn't it? Could be. I think, yeah. I mean, the social media question, it's it's such an interesting one. And it's one that we really don't have enough kind of evidence on, I think, at the moment. And certainly enough of the right kind of evidence. We're still figuring out, for instance, how to best measure social media usage. So it's difficult to understand exactly how that kind of comes into play. But certainly it is happening at an age when people are figuring out their identities. And I think we don't really know yet what the kind of implication of that is. But certainly we know that for girls, a lot of stuff does kind of, you know, there's a lot of changes in the body that come with puberty. And sometimes it might be about how other, you know, we've talked about that thing of, you know, sexual harassment being rife, sexualization of girls, that they are really seeing that. And actually, as their bodies are shifting, it used to be sometimes called kind of sexual hassling starts to happen in that daily life. And actually, some of that they're seeing on social media as well, that sexualization also. And as you said, they're kind of figuring out their bodies, and they're figuring out all of these kinds of things. So I think it's, interesting and I think that there definitely needs to be kind of more ongoing research but again I think sometimes it's been an easy out to say oh well social media is explaining what's happening for girls right now as I said we're doing some research at the moment with young women and I'm really interested to hear what they think of that as an issue and and how they feel about that because often actually when we've talked with young people overwhelmingly they talk about social media as a place where they can engage with each other and where they connect with people that they are also connecting with in day-to-day life not always but I think you know they do talk about that as actually another way of connecting with one another when it's going well it's great and when yeah until you get a negative post or you know somebody makes a negative comment and going back to your original point about self-esteem it's a house of cards for many children I think Tracy Wade's work in Australia, looking at the relationship between social media and and disordered eating, Mm. there are strong patterns coming out there. You know, the amount of social media apps a teenage girl uses and her disordered eating behaviors and thoughts, but how vulnerable they are entering that space in the first place that that pre-existing vulnerability is something that we need to pay attention to maybe. Yeah, and it's how you're building narratives in that time. And we know that social comparison is really quite strong in adolescence. And actually, this is a whole new platform and way of doing that in a way that's wider. So I think, yeah, definitely what we need to understand is what is it that's happening when they're on those apps that is or isn't problematic and to really try and better understand. And I think also to have conversations as we start to build that, having clear conversations and having transparency from tech companies about what they're doing about that, I think is the other thing. That it's, you know, a lot of talk is about how can we help young people navigate that? How can we have conversations? And actually some of it is about what the tech companies need to kind of think about there as we understand that better, I think. Did your paper, the work that you've done with young people in that particular paper, did it look at issues to do with gender? We know that gender questioning is a big topic in schools and sort of ambivalence perhaps about who, what we are as young teenagers. Did that come into that work at all? Not in this piece of work, purely because of the data that we had access to didn't allow for that. That is something that certainly that others are looking at and that I'd like to look at in the future just to kind of understand that better. And there is some excellent work happening. There was very recently a piece of work come out from the hashtag BeWell project in Greater Manchester. They've just published an inequalities briefing around all kinds of different aspects of well-being. And certainly they did report that, you know, 
children and young people, well, young people who, who were kind of considering themselves to be gender diverse were reporting worse outcomes on some of those fronts. So there definitely is kind of wider work from other people kind of looking at that and certainly identifying that there are disparities there. If you were a school leader or a pastoral a member of staff in a school reading your recent paper, what is it that you hope they take from it? I mean, I've read it and you've been very clear on things that schools can think about doing or absorbing into their own culture. But what are the messages you'd like school staff to take from your paper, if any? Yeah, it's a good question. I think one of the things that's in the paper that I suppose I didn't touch on too much before is the implications of what happens when these things are happening in unison. So, you know, yes, low academic attainment, you know, is a risk factor. And yes, caregiving responsibilities is a risk factor. And yes, special educational needs is a risk factor. But what we need to think about is what happens. Young people are not only experiencing any one thing at any one time. Young people have very complex lives. What we looked at here was what happened when young people had more than one of those risk factors. And that is when we also start to see difficulties creeping up more. So I think what I would say for schools is being aware of the things that are happening in young people's lives and in girls' lives and thinking about some of the vulnerabilities that they do have in terms of emotional symptoms in adolescence. You know, being aware of where things might be difficult, being aware of where there might be you know, multiple things that could be becoming overwhelming for somebody and actually having those relationships that allow you to know about those areas of young people's lives. People often are not aware, for instance, it's quite difficult to do research with young carers because we don't always know that they are young carers. And that is a challenge that schools sometimes have also, that there are young carers that are not necessarily known to their school. So it's about kind of building over time those relationships with students to understand actually what might be challenging for them. How does that fit into their life? So like I said, there are other things that might not be risk factors in this sample, but it doesn't mean that any one young person might not be experiencing some of those things as difficult. Well, it sounds incredibly important for schools to screen in basic ways or in you know using screening tools as much as possible to try and identify where pupils feel they're doing well almost like a resilience screening tool or, you know, and just being able to map it out a little bit better before sort of jumping in and with lots of different ideas. Yeah. So I think having space to identify, and that could happen through relationships with a form tutor I had a year, or it could happen through wider things. We have things like the wellbeing measurement framework, which schools can get involved with. But there's also, you know, I mean, there's lots of stuff out there on kind of explicitly mental health screening on identifying people who might have early signs of some difficulties and thinking about what could be put in place, identifying what might be happening for them. So it might not be about identifying risk factors always. Sometimes it might be about saying, okay, well, we're seeing these young people seem to be reporting some greater levels of this. So actually having conversations with them about what's happening there. Now, you recently worked on another report for the NICE. Can you just tell us what that stands for, that acronym? Yeah, so the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence. And you spoke to children and young people and asked them for their opinions on mental health and well-being provision in primary and secondary schools. What did those children and teenagers tell you or identify as key in helping schools provision to be as effective as possible? So I really love this piece of work. <laughs> yeah, we were informing. So so NICE have coming out later this year. They've got the draft version out at the moment, but they're publishing later this year guidance for schools on wellbeing provision. And they really wanted to make sure that they had that voice from children and young people. So we went out and spoke with young people aged. The youngest we spoke to were six. The eldest was 17. So a real span across mainstream provision, across alternative provision, special schools, or our special school. We essentially asked them what to, to come up with, pretend they were head teachers in a school. 
in an imaginary fictional setting and we put a lot of different questions and scenarios to them we had like a storybook that we talked through with them essentially what we wanted to understand was in an ideal world what's their vision of best practice what's their vision of good practice and they I mean they were amazing they did a really really you know we've got such rich things coming out of that now we've written the report for nice that gets into this bit of this type of well-being provision and it's very very closely focused some of the key messages which we're preparing to kind of publish on at the moment are around seeing school as a social community and facilitating that social community and it being a kind of space that's centered around being kind and compassionate and connecting with each other as well as with the school and with staff and kind of having those relationships it's around well-being being a genuine priority and recognizing that sometimes that's clashing with other priorities in school. So I think we had one young person who said, you know, come on, school causes some of these problems, you're going to fix them as well. And actually, you know, some of them were quite clear that actually sometimes these things are in direct opposition in their experience. And so it's recognizing that actually there are times when it's school demands that are creating challenges and thinking about how kind of schools can make sense of that with students and kind of be conscious of that. They also talked about having good quality, close, trusting relationships with teachers. They talked about wanting teachers to feel more like friends and less focused on power and hierarchy and being strict. And they want to see that. And and many of them were saying they experienced relationships with teachers that were like that, but they were talking about how critical that was if they were going to engage in, in wellbeing support. I think one of them said, you know, in theory, teachers are a great person for wellbeing support, but in reality, sometimes you don't really feel that they care. Sometimes you worry that they're going to tell somebody what you've said. There's all kinds of challenges kind of bound up in that. So they want to feel more close personal relationships. It's not easy for teachers, is it? Because, no. you know, at the end of the day, they have that curriculum to yes. get through exams. To, you know, they're being held to very, very high standards. Yeah. It's really and hard. at the same time, expected to navigate all of this sort of, you know, these issues on, on mental health yeah. and well-being. So it's not easy. I always ask researchers this question. What keeps you awake at night, if anything, in terms <laughs> of adolescent mental health? You know, what is it? I'm a criminologist, right? So one of the things that keeps me awake at night is the safety work that young women are having to do in, you know, when they're out and about and sexual mm. harassment. That's something I'm really, I think a lot about and I worry about it and I mull over in my head what we can all do about, you know, that particular topic. What do you think about a lot and worry about? Or It's a great question. Am I allowed to have two answers or do I have to? Go on then, you can have two. <laughs> um, I think first I worry about we're doing all this research and identifying all these challenges. And like you said before, all the pressures that are on teachers when we're talking about well-being provision in schools, I worry that we're not being, or rather that we're not able to be in terms of resourcing and policy bold enough to actually do the things that are necessary. So, you know, there was a lot of pushback a couple of years ago on the, the kind of, you know, that idea of schools as a context for mental health promotion. In theory, wonderful. In reality, teachers have so much to do in schools, have so many pressures and and they were not given enough resourcing to make that kind of change or enough wiggle room in the curriculum or, you know, that there's so many problems with that. And actually, I worry that we are identifying all the things that are really important and then not really acting on them. So, you know, the impact that austerity has had on inequality, the impact that lots of policies have on inequality for families, for young people, and again, kind of issues for, for young women around kind of sexual safety and all those kinds of things. I worry that we we know what a lot of the solutions might look like but we're not in a position to kind of implement them and so I think sometimes I worry that we are expecting young people and families to pick up a lot of that slack themselves instead of kind of doing things that can bridge some of those issues. 
Yeah, there's a disproportionality, isn't there, between the great research being done and what needs to happen and what's actually maybe happening on the ground. It's really quite difficult without the resource behind it. Yeah. Tell us what you sort of do on a day-to-day basis or like, what are you working on right now? Yeah. So day-to-day in research, because I have lots of teaching to do as well and marking at the moment, but day-to-day in research, I'm working on writing up the paper from our NICE project that looks at the kind of values and the principles that children and young people want to see in a school that's well-being focused. But I'm also working at the moment, we've just had ethical approval on a project with young women talking about what they think is feeding into difficulties right now. We're working on other bits of work that are kind of all bubbling around that planning for future work. So at the moment, lots of my research focus is taken up by these kinds of projects that we're doing that's funded by the National Institute for Health Research, working with young women to kind of explore some of those issues. So very much lots of my day to day at the moment is bound up in kind of getting ready to start those focus groups. So last couple of questions. Do you look at ethnicity within your work and around health inequalities and young women's mental health as well? It's a good question. Not necessarily always explicitly as a research question, but definitely something that we want to be conscious of the role that that's playing and in thinking about the different ways that that might be playing out. So for instance, in this project where we're doing focus groups with young women, a really key question for us as a team was how do we make sure that this is a diverse sample in lots of ways, both in terms of ethnicity, but also in terms of things like level of deprivation, in terms of making sure that we include not just heterosexual young women. You know, there's all kinds of components that we need to think about there and being aware that when we're talking about young women or when we're talking about young people, there is not one young person. It's not, you know, one person that represents everybody. There's so many pockets of experience. So yeah, definitely trying to be taking those steps to make sure that we are conscious of the different kind of components, including ethnicity and the kind of cultural components of that also in thinking about how that might play into the kinds of mental health questions that we're asking. When is your NICE report published? When's that coming out the one that you mentioned yeah so the main report that we did for them which is very very long is already out because they've published the draft consultation and i can send you the link to that so that you can share that but we are working on a couple of smaller papers that get into closer issues within those and we're working on getting those submitted and published this year brilliant we shall look out for those and we'll disseminate them to our schools so thank you on behalf of everyone for all the terrific research that you're doing in such an important area we're really grateful that you're able to join us today Thanks so much, Ola. Thanks for having me, Cathy. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.